This morning the text is 1 Samuel chapter 8. Just a taste of what you folks who don't come to the evening service are missing, 1 Samuel chapter 8. It seems that complaining about government is an American pastime. I mean, we come by it honestly. The American Revolution, hello, this is a big complaint about government, wasn't it? And we kind of threw that government off and made our own. We see in 1 Samuel 8 that the Israelites were discontent with their government. They wanted something more. The difference is their government was just God. God was their king. Samuel was his judge. They were tired of it. They wanted something more. More importantly in 1 Samuel, I think we see that this text describes us. You'll see a little bit of you in this text as well. 1 Samuel 8. I'll read the entire chapter. Please remain seated until the end when, when I ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Hear this word for you. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the kings who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to his horsemen to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now would you please stand and hear the reading of God's word. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. 
And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. Amen. Please be seated. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do come to you, our King, and we pray that your word would be effective, that it would rebuke and correct and and exhort us and train us, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray that you would use this broken and leaky vessel to proclaim the gospel truths of salvation, that you would strike a straight blow with this crooked stick, and that you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. How to Flourish in Life. It's the title of the sermon. How to Flourish in Life. It's a pretty simple message. Reject the world. And heed God's word. That's how we flourish in life. Seems like we all want to know, whether you're in church or not, what will make me happy? What in this earth will make me happy? Everyone in every part of the earth wants to know what will make them happy. It's a human question. It's what people strive for. They strive for happiness. John Piper has helpfully analyzed the human experience through Scripture's lens, the desires that we have as human beings, and he's termed the result of that study Christian hedonism. Now, a hedonist, for those of you who don't know that word, a hedonist is someone who just lives for pleasure. They live for happiness. That's all they live for. A hedonist would say that the chief end of man is not to glorify God, but to pursue happiness and be happy. The Bible teaches otherwise. What we learn from Scripture, to quote Piper, is Christian hedonism. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we pursue God's glory, this is really pursuing happiness and joy. The Westminster Divines were right. The chief end of man, the primary purpose of man, is to what? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When we seek and glorify God, this is part of Piper's point, when we seek to glorify God, when we seek God, I would say, when you seek after God and His Word, that's when you're ultimately and completely most satisfied in life. When you seek your contentment in other things, in other places, and other things like the Israelites did in the world or their own wisdom, you'll never really flourish. You'll never be content. What will make you happy is serving God in his glory alone, as he's revealed in the scriptures alone, through Christ alone. But Israel, in this text, rather than being content to serve their king, as he revealed himself to them through his judge, 
Samuel. He, he was proclaiming the word of God to them. Rather, they chose to pursue the ways of the world. They wanted to be like the world. So that's our first point, is that we need to reject the world. Just like the Israelites needed to reject the ways of the world, they needed to follow hard after God as he revealed himself to them. We also need to reject the world and the world's ways. But Israel did have a real problem. If you remember in verses 1 through 3, Israel was in a bit of a pickle. Samuel was getting old. What did it say about Samuel's sons? They were kind of like Eli's sons. They didn't serve God. There was an actual problem here. They despised God. They perverted justice for their own wealth, for gain. And the elders knew that this would not work. When Samuel died, these men didn't serve God. They could not lead us. But rather than turn to God in prayer... Rather than seek God in the way that he has revealed himself to them through their judge, Samuel, they come up with their own solution. And it's a solution that's worked out in their own minds as being something really good. And it's also a very worldly solution. What do they say? Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. So they took that trial that God had put on them and they used it Not to pursue God more, but rather to pursue the world. To pursue their own happiness in ways that God had not ordained. And remember, God said, they're not just rejecting you, they're rejecting me as their king. It seemed that they had forgotten all that God had done for them. They were rejecting their king, their savior. That's what God says in verse 7. They've rejected me for being king over them. And what had their king done for them? Well, amazing things. First of all, the king had, their king had defeated Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the premier ruler in all the earth. And Yahweh had defeated Pharaoh decisively. Hundreds of years before, yes, but it had happened. And it had not happened again since then. Pharaoh had not been defeated again. And would not be defeated again for another 400 years when the Assyrians and then the Babylonians defeated Pharaoh at the Battle of Carchemish in 600 A.D. B.C., sorry. So Pharaoh was not to be defeated for thousands of years, and yet Yahweh had done that. That was their king, and they forgot. They forgot what he had done. That their Lord was the Lord of hosts. That phrase, you know, is an army phrase. Hosts mean armies. He's the Lord of armies. He's a warrior. They're warrior king. And yet they didn't want him. They'd also quickly forgotten from just the very chapter before this that their king had recently saved them from the Philistines. Remember Samuel even set up an Ebenezer, a stone pillar, saying, let's never forget what God has done for us. Let's never forget. He's been faithful all the way up to now. And yet they had forgotten that he had defeated the Philistines in a mighty and thunderous way. They also had forgotten that God had raised up for them Samuel and indeed all the judges before him who had delivered Israel. In short, they had forgotten that God was their king and that he cared for them and would continue to care for them. 
They didn't want that. They didn't want the word that Samuel brought to them. They wanted their own king, like the rest of the nations. Verse 6 says that this thing displeased Samuel. He saw it for what it was. It was a rejection of God. It was a rejection of the appointed leadership that God had put in their way. It was a rejection of God's word and an embrace of the world. As a side note, and we'll get to this at the end, we know that God used even this rebellion to bring about his own glory, didn't he? Because from that came King David. We have the covenant with King David, which is ultimately fulfilled by Christ, the King of Kings, who was a descendant of David. Indeed, when you go to the book of Revelation, one of the favorite ways that John proclaims and that Jesus proclaims his own name is that he is the root of David. He's the son of David. So even in this rebellion, God is glorified. And he's always glorified in this earth. And yet the fact remains, they rebelled against God and against his word. The ways of the world seem better than God's revealed way to care for them through the judges, through the word of God. I think many in church today, and many churches today, are like Israel at that time. The application is easy, isn't it? We see the world and we want the church to be more like the world. We want the church to show how to get happy and healthy and successful. God's revealed means of grace seem weak in our eyes. The preaching and teaching of the Word of God, the administration of the sacraments, prayer together, corporate prayer and fellowship, these are not enough. These things are not good enough. They're not sufficient to be really effective and content in this very complicated world. We need more than that. What we need is less preaching and more just good music. We need good singing. Forget the preaching. Less Bible, more entertainment. We need less doctrine and we need more jokes, Pastor. You're not funny. Less prayer. More electric guitars. We need less worship on Sunday. We need more leisure time is what we need because we're tired. Dr. Robert Godfrey, we're actually on Wednesdays after we finish the series on worship, we're going to go through a, a series on the Lord's Day. It's blessed my heart. But Dr. Robert Godfrey and many theologians agree that if you look forward into history 200, 300 years from now, and they write a history of the church in America, they're going to see a turning point somewhere in the 20th century where the worship of God on the Lord's Day became almost meaningless. It's a kind of a good thing, but it's not valuable. We don't see it as important. That they would see when they wrote the history of the church in America, they would look in the 20th century and go, that was when it all changed. 
the church began to devalue the Lord's Day, and it just became another day for rest and indulgence and entertainment and leisure, with a little bit in the morning devoted to God. And this marked the the, the decline of the American church. And really, we can see this. When we look at it, just practically look at our landscape today, you can see that. I mean, even in Presbyterian churches, there's rarely an evening service. And if there is, it's very infrequently attended. Why is that? Now, of course, people have legitimate excuses for not coming to church And I don't need you to come to church anytime. If there's one person here, I'm going to preach to one person. I have a job to do. But part of it is explaining the truth to you. And we have accepted the world's ways as our own ways. And we think that what the world needs is what we need, which is just leave me alone and let me rest. The decline of the American church is related to our accepting of culture, our embracing the things of the world, the kings of this world, and what they tell us. Think about this. If the people of God truly believed that the preaching of God's word and the sacraments and prayer and corporate fellowship, if these things really were means of grace, meaning that this is how God showers his grace and his blessing upon his people, if you really believe that was true, Would you not come as often as possible to hear God's word? Reminds me of Martin Luther. He had the weight of the world on his shoulders. And he said, I'm just so busy today that I cannot even begin the day without devoting four hours to prayer. You see, we get things backwards when we begin thinking like the world. If you truly believe that God shows grace to you and encourages your spirit through the ordinary means that he's appointed then you will want that as often as you can get it. And for each one of you, that means morning and evening worship on the Lord's Day. It means coming every time you can to hear the Word of God preached and taught. David's taking calculus right now. And I'm kind of feeling for him. He's, I mean, calculus is hard. Can you imagine if his calculus teacher was told, Okay, it's a three-hour class. In other words, it's three credit hours, so you get three hours of instruction a week. But for this semester, you can only do it in one and a half hours. You, You can only use half the time to teach them everything they need about calculus to pass the exam, to get through the final. It's ridiculous, right? It would be impossible. How much more important is your own soul? How much more important is the soul of your family? You think what you need is more rest on the Lord's Day? What you need is God's Word. Saints, you need God's Word. Morning and evening. It's not just good ideas. It's not just a recommendation. You need God's Word as often as you can get it. God changes your soul. He saves you. He redeems you. He sanctifies you. Nothing could be more important than God's Word in your life. Your ultimate contentment and happiness don't come from pursuing pleasure, pursuing your own comfort. They come from pursuing God. If you want to flourish in this life, don't pursue the world like the Israelites did. Pursue God. After meeting more than a thousand times, here's what the Westminster Divines wrote about the preaching of the Word. 
The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That's what we all want. We want the holiness of God in our lives. We want the comfort of God in our lives. We want to be saved. But the Israelites rejected God. They rejected His Word. Why? Because they wanted to be like the world. They thought the world had the answers. They thought a king would make them happy and secure. This is not our standard for flourishing. Happiness and contentment is not found anywhere else, brothers and sisters. It's not, except in pursuing God in the ways that He has ordained. The Word, the sacraments, prayer, fellowship. Pursue God. Secondly, you have to heed the Word of God. The people of Israel told Samuel they wanted a king, and Samuel knew that God would give them a king because God told them this fact. But then Samuel is also told to tell the people of Israel all the negative influences of this king upon their land. It was the final warning. It was the final word of God. Tell them all that this king is going to do. Proclaim the word of God to them. So what did he tell them? They're gonna, the king will take your sons and make them work. They're going to plow for him. They're going to run before his chariots. They're going to command his armies. They're going to make weapons. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and bakers and cooks. He's going to take your fields, your vineyards, your olive orchards. He's going to take your grain, your male servants and your female servants. He's going to take a tenth of your flocks. Over and over again, he said, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take. Do you realize that's what the world does when you pursue the world? It takes, and it takes, and it takes, it takes from your soul. You cannot flourish pursuing the world. The world will only take and take and take. You know, we sometimes are enamored by these super wealthy people. You think these wealthiest people in the world are fulfilled and flourishing? In the midst of all their wealth, they feel like it's taking from them. Their souls are shriveling up apart from Christ. They cannot be content. Why? Just like the Israelites, they're slaves. That's what Samuel says. He will make you a slave. This king you want, you'll be his slave. Those who pursue the world become slaves to the world. We're all born slaves to sin. And the world as well. As we pursue the world, we become slaves to the world. God told them exactly what would happen. And the kings of Israel did just that. They're just fallen men. A fallen man given ultimate power. He's going to abuse that power. This is what all the kings did. They abused their power. That's why the Presbyterian form of government really is the best way to do things. You don't want just one guy, one pastor, in charge of the church. That's just too much. The Presbyterians knew not only what God's Word taught, 
but knew that it was right because when the power is distributed among a, a plurality of elders, that makes the church safe because you don't have one man struck with power destroying the church with his own iniquity. But one king was going to do just that to Israel. All the kings of Israel and Judah, with very few exceptions, brought rebellion and sin into the land. They abused the people, eventually led the people into slavery. The people, the kingdom was destroyed and they were exiles and slaves to the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So our application is not just to hear the Word of God, it's to heed the Word of God. I was talking to someone this morning, and that's, like, that's all of life, isn't it? We know God's Word. What we need is to listen and obey God's Word. We need to heed the Word of God. Everything Samuel said about the kings was true. They didn't listen. God's Word is our guide in life. That's why we read it often. Every day you're reading the Word of God because you know it contains the Word of life. That's why the preaching of God is important in our lives. That's why memorizing and meditating on God's Word is so critical. Because in it we see the Gospel and it makes us wise to salvation. We're not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It transforms our thoughts, words, and deeds. The gospel is for every day. And it changes us. But we don't just hear the word. We need to heed it. We need to heed the word. Remember, this is one of Jesus' messages as well. When he was on the earth, he said over and over again, it's not just those who hear my word, but those who obey me are the ones who love me. We need to apply this word to our lives. When you hear the Word of God, when you read the Word of God, you need to remember that it's God's Word. When you hear the Word of God preached from the pulpit, you need to remember that God is using this this weak and sinful man to proclaim the Word of God to your souls. It's the loving instruction of a father who dearly loves his children. You need to know your father dearly loves you. It's the patient correction of a king who has taken all the punishment upon himself. The king who actually came and died to bring you into the family. It's the hopeful encouragement of a comforter who knows every one of your hurts, every one of your sorrows. He knows every one of the pains that you carry, that you bear in your body and in your soul, and he comforts you with his word. This is the Word of God. It's our most precious, tangible gift in the Christian life. Tangible gift. Something you can hold. Something you can read. The Holy Spirit is the most precious gift we have. But He uses the Word of God. And it's no coincidence that Jesus calls Himself what? The Word. Again, listen to the Westminster Divines. How is the Word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? So when you read the Bible and when you hear the Bible preached and taught that the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto 
with diligence and preparation and prayer. Receive it with faith and love and lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Today, don't reject the Word of God. If you hear my voice, don't reject God and His warnings to you. Rather, attend unto the preached Word of God. Attend unto the Word as you read it. Hold tightly to it in faith and love and receive it. Lay it up in your heart and practice it with your lives. So in conclusion, they should have served the king. That's what they should have done. They should have served the king, not pursued the world. Today I would say don't refuse the voice of the one who calls you. You're called to serve the king as well. The Israelites rejected their king. They went their own way, the way of the world, and they adopted the ways of the world. What they didn't know was the best way to be content and to flourish in life is to pursue God in the way that He's given us, to be pursued. And ultimately what He's given us is Jesus. He's given us the King, King Jesus. You realize that You know, when we read the Ten Commandments, I'm reading each one of those and I'm going, Lord, I'm sorry. I know we read them backwards. Sorry about that too. But I read each one of those and I'm thinking, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. I have had other gods before me or before you. I have taken your name in vain. I have not honored you in all the ways that you reveal yourself to us. I looked at the the Lord's Day with something other than worship in my heart. And each one just convicted my soul. My heart was heavy as I remembered the various ways that I failed my Lord, grieved the Holy Spirit. And each one of those sins... Put Christ on the cross. Christ came and died for people like me. Sinners like me. Sinners like you. And he took that sin to the cross. And the righteousness that was his in life, he he imputes to each one of us who have faith in him. So don't you see that to reject this wonderful offer of grace, if you reject this today, And every one of you have heard the gospel preached. If you reject this today, that you are embracing the damnation that is due you, why? Why do that? Soften your heart. Brothers, soften your heart, sisters. Receive the free gift of God. Receive salvation in Christ. We come to a time of the Lord's Supper. That's what we're doing. We're remembering what Christ has done. We're remembering that He actually did this. The great transaction occurred where He took our guilt and our shame on Himself and He gave us His righteousness. His death is showed forth every time we partake of the Lord's Supper. And we are made partakers of his body and blood. 
to our spiritual nourishment and our growth in grace, something changes in us. It's not just an observance. 